I want to thank my sponsor, Viva. Viva, thank you so much for making this show possible. Viva is here to change the game. They have electronic regulatory documents for sites for free with no commitment, no contract. I just signed up my site, Yuma Clinical Trials. No contract needed, nothing signed. They they just approve your email address and that's it. You're up and running with an electronic regulatory system, which is a great way if you haven't gotten into electronic anything yet. You need to consider it. It's it's free. Over 450 sponsors are using Viva for their backend stuff. Electronic signatures here, electronic uh, delegation of authorities log, all for free. Viva is going to keep giving sites free stuff because they're very site-centric. They they know that if they help empower the sites, even more sponsors are going to use their paid products on their end. They are the sponsors after all, so they pay for things. And they understand that making sites take control of their electronic systems is a huge first step. It's a huge commitment for sites, even for something that's free. And they're here to make it easy, and they're playing the long game. And anyways, go check it out underneath the video or the show notes below. Viva Site Vault. Thank you, Viva. I think we're live. We are. It says live on With my Edens. We're live. Put your comments. Okay, Edie, listen, thank you so much for yes. coming on. It's been years, years <laughs> in the making. I feel like I know you just from LinkedIn. It's crazy how that works now. It's amazing, um, right? Like, especially for, I mean, you have a site you go into, but then you also have your own things that you're doing in the industry. But like for me, I mean, I'm at home alone in my own little bubble. I live in a huge life sciences city. I could throw a stone and I would hit three people's houses that work at Lily. It's not as if I don't have people to ah, talk to in my industry. I just had an SSV with them yesterday. Right. And I mean, their global headquarters are here in Indy. We have a huge academic medical center. Big, they, oh, are, they are. They are. I'm not going to say anymore because I'm not allowed. Don't to get in trouble. <laughs> no, 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 no. But no, like it's one of those. Everyone in the city knows what you're doing. If you really wanted to like go to coffee with a friend and talk ideas, it's not as if that doesn't exist. But that ability to just walk down the hall and go, have I lost my mind? A monitor just said this to me. You know what I mean? Like when you're flying solo or you're in a decentralized remote work, that's the one thing that kind of goes to the wayside. So LinkedIn and Knowing folks like yourself and Brad, that's actually like really important, not only for my sanity, but also so I have some people to go, okay, are you experiencing this? Is this happening to you? Because otherwise I'm just siloed. Like yeah. it's weird. I got out of academic, you know, in-houseness to be less siloed in expertise. And then <laughs> I do it remotely. So I'm like more siloed than I ever was. More like it's si- a very I like, know. it's an interesting you know- during COVID, I that was my only time. Like I worked from home, mm-hmm. and especially in that first six months, and especially in California, it was super strict. So like, oh yeah, a trip to Costco was like going to Disneyland for me. <laughs> and I uh, believe you know, that. I believe one that. of the reasons why I started this site in Yuma, we moved, was because I didn't really want to work from home every day. Like I, I like it now. I'm at home today, but most of the days I'm on site. There's like a variety. I have right. like action and then I have like structured stuff like my podcast and then I have more action and solving problems. Mm-hmm. I just like that change. Yep. I don't like too much of either one though. 
but I right. like to mix it. <laughs> See, you sound like my husband. That's how he is. All the time at home was not really great. He needs that like water cooler chatter. Yeah, I need that. Uh, you know, whereas I'm like, dude, that would save me an hour in my day to just not talk to anyone and get stuff done because I'm an that asshole makes like that. Good though, that makes it <laughs> good because I walk when I'm at the site. I walk around. I talk to everyone, every right. single MA. They're right. probably annoyed, but I, I do it <laughs> anyway. But I you also anyway. are, but I, I think it's different too when you're in a leadership position because like that, and it's not about being seen. I don't mean it that way. I mean like your people truly genuinely need to connect to their leadership to know that you're present, that you appreciate them, that you see them doing the hard day-to-day roll up your sleeves mm-hmm. ops, that you're not just there to save the day or take all the glory or land the big deal or tell them to work harder. Like that's a critical <laughs> piece of leadership. Work harder, guys. Work right? harder. Right? <laughs> like you'd be shocked how many times in my career I have been told if you just work a little harder. And I'm like, really? <laughs> really? Because you know so many people who work as hard as I do. Okay. Well, um, that's a good place to start. I mean, managing has never been managing people has never been my forte. And I've been doing it since two thousand five. Well, really <laughs> two thousand six. Two thousand five was like just me figuring it out. But I've always took the path of like being too nice of a boss. That's Mm. been my biggest criticism from everyone, business partners, my spouse. That's a tough one. Former employees. They're like, no, you're too nice. You know, you're too nice. That's like, I'd rather have that than this guy's an asshole. Right. Exactly. I mean, I mean, when compared, right? Like I'd rather be compared (laughs) as like a giant softy as opposed to a raging bitch. But the other side of that (laughs) point is like, you keep one bad person you lose five good people yes and so like it's that delicate line of when it's time Mm -hmm. and that's what it's honestly it's what i've always worried about even as a parent that i was going to be not good at and i worry in my management style like i'm one of those i'm nice i'm nice i give you a first chance i give you a second chance then the hammer comes down Mm-hmm. And I don't think people are always aware that that's like how that's going to go. They think that there's going to be the third chance, the fourth chance, the fifth chance. And it's like the difference between like my son was having, a, we've been having his bedtime meltdowns. He's four. It's never happened <laughs> until this week. It's happened like every night this week. Awesome. Man. Um, this is also while it's like snowing in March in Indy. So like it's just, just make like, him listen to the podcast. He'll fall right? asleep real quick. <laughs> right? and, it, and you could just tell like the minute he got to his third chance to listen. And I said like, that's enough. He goes, daddy, daddy. And I'm like, no, there's no tattling. (laughs) Like, I'm your parent. I'm right in front of you. And that's the difference. And you feel bad, but you also are like, okay, I gave you chance one. I gave you chance two. I'm a nice boss, but I'm not a, you know, softy boss. There's a a difference. I have great compassion. I have great empathy. I mean, I've had no shortage of employees who are going through personal situations, Mm -hmm. um, work situations, health crises, but... It, you know, and I remember having a situation with an employee once where there was a health issue present. It was very personal. It was very emotional. It was very hard for her. Woman to woman, she had chosen to share, not as a manager, but as a friend, what was going on. And I told her, I'll forward you, you know, every last bit of flexibility because I want to, I want you to know your boss is human and that I know you're human too. And that what you're going through is so much bigger than this job. This job will be here in 10 years, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it worked. Until like it was one of those situations where I asked her to do something that was reasonable and she barked and I went, hold on, <laughs> like I am still your boss. And it was a really reasonable request. Like, why are we doubling down on yeah. this? And it was like, have I ever 
given you, you know, bad guidance? No. Have I not respected all of your personal requests? Well, of course, you've been beyond empathetic and compassionate and helpful. Okay, so then why, when I ask you to do a simple thing as your boss, would you bark up that tree? Why would you take it out on the person's? So it's just very... And it was because it was almost because like she felt too close. Like she felt like we were more yeah. friends and it was like, I, I want to cultivate a relationship where you can come to me about anything and you know, I'm human, but I, I am still your boss. Like there is a relationship, especially in the workplace. And that's, that's a tough one. I've had bosses that I was really close to. I have bosses that I hate. I've had bosses in between. Yeah. There's no, there's not one model that works. Like you, you not. It, 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 I that started makes it doing the personality test. The Oh yeah. Which one are you doing? Question. I'm an ENFP, so I'm the okay. one. Um, I'm INFJ. I knew you were one of my employees. <laughs> <laughs> one of my employees is exactly that. Actually, my wife is that. That's um, people no, never no, believe wife. that I'm an introvert. Like they never believe, and I'm like, what? When they came up with the ambivert term a couple years ago, I was like running up and down the street naked. I was so happy because I was like, <laughs> that's what I am. That's what I am. Like. I can turn it on. I'll sit here with you and chat for two hours and we'll have a blast. And then I'll get off here and not talk to anyone. For yeah. You're INFJ. It's exactly what my wife is mm -hmm. that we make a good team for, because I'm an ENFP. Yeah. One of my employees, see, this is why I brought this up. I stopped managing employees the same. Like yeah, I believe you, can't. you, you have can't. to personalize it. You have to personalize. You it. have to understand who they are. Like this person likes recognition. This person could care less. Mm -hmm. I don't really like to give it too much, right. but if this person likes it, okay, well, I'm going to make sure that right. I'm throwing it in there in a public setting when right. I can like, Hey, because that's part of their job satisfaction profile. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas someone like me, I, I'm going to come to work, whether you tell me I'm awesome or not, it's just how yeah. I'm wired. And while it's nice, or if like, there's a really big project, I, I wouldn't mind a pat on the back when I'm, you know, killing it. But I'm not doing it for you. I'm yeah. not doing it for an accolade. I don't need you to do that to get me to keep coming to the, yes, yes. To the office. Like you just, but there's some people to do. And I think that personalization that you're talking about is like spot on. Like the really good leaders, think about it. the really good leaders, mentors, people you know, they took the time to personalize. And, I make them all take it now. And it um, is it is huge. It's huge. It's huge because when I don't I think started, they see that as an investment that like you really give a shit about them. Like you're well, not doing this to like test and see if they're going to be good at the job. It's more like, no, I would just want to know how you're going to respond to situations so that I can put you in the right ones. Yeah. Most of them are also curious. Like it started with one of my, my newest employee. She was like, Hey, did you do this? I'm like, yeah, this is my score. What's yours? She gave me hers. And then we made the, everyone else do it. Mm -hmm. So now I know, mm -hmm. you know, it started out as a game, but now I know, okay, this person, this is how I got it treat them in the workplace it's a one. really big deal yeah and there's yeah. a lot of different ones i have my um so in my copious amounts of spare time outside of clinical trials i teach cohorts of law students and i get to teach them doctrinally like in life sciences compliance and what i do which is awesome because go figure i graduated from a great health law program that had no classes on what i do for a living even though we share a parking lot with the school of medicine um and a large <laughs> one at that and so when I got out and realized this was going to be my career, which was not what I initially went to law school for, it was like, oh, I'm going to go take some classes at the law school because I'm an academic by trade. Like, that's how I was raised. Like, you you, you get a book out and you, you read about it, right? Yes. And I went back to the law school and they're like, nobody teaches classes on this. Like, And I was like, okay, but we live in a life sciences city. There's thousands of us doing something in this ecosystem, like right here in Indy. Why aren't we teaching our law students about it? So I've taught doctrinal classes for well over a decade. But each semester I get to teach 
uh, law students who, for the most part, are interested in health law or beginning that journey, seeing what areas of health law they might be uh. into. They're second or third years, so they're past that kind of first year, like, oh my God, where am I at? What am I doing? They're way more into starting to take the classes they want. Second, third year is like when you major or when you like specialize. It's when you do your residency. And so here they are, second and third year, and they're trying on externships for academic credit. And so they asked me about four or five years ago to come in and take over the program. I'd taken students when I was in-house at the same school. And my one complaint to the program was always, we're just, we're underutilizing this program. And students need experience, man. They need real boots on the ground experience. You can go through all law school just reading books and still pass the bar. And you've never done anything. And that just like doesn't work in this industry. Yeah, how good is that when like chat GPT can pass the bar too? (laughs) Exactly. And also how meaningful is that? Like what has the student, a med student or a nursing student is going to do rotations in their residency. Some of that's because they're required and they don't love everything they do. Fair enough. Some of it teaches them and tells them and informs them like, okay, I do want to do peds or I don't. Like, I thought I was going to like psych. Wow, I hated it. And so like that is huge to find out in your residency as opposed to 10 years out. And we're just selling our students short. So anyway, long story short, I was asked to bring in this curriculum and I'm sitting in front of these students the first semester in teaching and I'm, you know, I'm thinking doctrinal, like teach them about health law, where it comes from, what's the history, blah, blah. These are experiential learning students. Plus, they're all already in a classroom all day, reading and writing. They know they have to show up to the interview. They know they have to work their butts off. They know they have to make the grades. Like, they, they don't need my help to tell them that. So we completely reconfigured the curriculum. And one of the big ones that I put in is I make them all do the VAI, which it's not quite like Myers-Briggs. It's not a personality test. It's more like a strength finder. But it was made and based by a bioethics consortium. And it's for some of them, they're used to it. Some of them, it's the first time they're doing it. But I'm like, look, you guys are all smart. Like, you're all going to show up and work hard. What's going to set you apart is who can lead, who can manage, who can work well collaboratively and independently, who can roll with the punches, who has the soft skills. It's not unlike our industry. Leadership is something extremely difficult. And and you got to practice. Man, the the best leaders in the world will tell you they're not even that good and that they're still practicing. And that's the thing. I don't think you're ever that good because, first of all, everyone's different. Second of all, uh, the situation calls for different actions. Like I took a leadership program in my MBA. Um, and mm-hmm. it, I mean, it's, it's, I wouldn't say worthless. It's a lot of academic knowledge, but. But in MBAs the- are like way better than MD, JD, RN. Like we don't teach any leadership classes. There's, there's nothing. Uh, there, there's nothing wow. there. There's no, I mean, and think about it. Like in your MBA especially some of these ones you're seeing at medical schools where it's like an MD, MBA executive thing, they might get some leadership because of that. But where in your medical school curriculum is leadership? They don't teach a lot of things in medical school. uh, Right? And then these are going to be the people who are the administrators of your research center. (laughs) My my sub-by has his own podcast that I encourage him to start. He's the Dr. Joe show. We did a first episode on coenzyme Q10. He says, do you know how many day, how many, how long they taught nutrition in medical school? How many days? My bio mom used to always say this because my parents are split now, but she was uh, JD MPH and she was doing her MPH at the same time my dad was doing his MD. And he used to drive her insane because she was like, I get it. You're a big deal. You're a doctor. 
but you don't know the first thing about nutrition, dietitian stuff. Nope. Like there's all sorts of things that like you just skipped. And, and, but it's very, it's just very telling uh, because like, I, 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 did you see that article I just put out? It was only like a day or two ago with Nicole Palmer about being a laggard in research. And no, but it, I got to see it. Yeah. I mean, there's so much content. My God, we all can't keep up, but part of it was about like referencing what I've talked about. And anyone who's seen me talk about clinical research culture has heard me talk about this. And that is the pathway to leadership is broken. I'm not saying that someone isn't rightfully a genius at that particular type of medicine, cancer, that I'm not going to go see them if I'm afflicted with it or my loved one is. But just because you are really excellent in any one area academically or professionally does not automatically make you amazing at every other area professionally. Like that's true for all of us. Some of us are going to be great at management. Some of us aren't. That doesn't mean we're not great subject matter experts at what we do. So why do we base in healthcare and especially research in ops promotions on things like, well, Edie, you don't have a clinical degree, so we can't promote you. Okay. But you're going to promote someone who has a lesser degree from a lesser institution with less experience, no ops, no management, so on. Without naming names, like, does that, I mean, you, maybe that happened to you early on in your career. Does it still happen? Still happening. Wow. Still happening. I'm not an RN. If I would go back and get a fly-by-night online RN, I would have significantly more job opportunities. But like what? Like CRA or? If you want to be the administrator in a cancer center, in any academic medical center, any NCI designated cancer center, and you don't have some clinical degree, even if you know the ops, the compliance, the billing, the finance, the designation, the grants, it'll never happen. I've seen people turn down people with 25 years of experience who could have turned their whole center around and they wouldn't do it all because they didn't have an RN. And I was like, I mean, like, you're not even going to be seeing patients. What is the point? And it's this misnomer that only the clinicians could understand that clinical world. And sure, in an OR, I agree with you, (laughs) but I'm not going to be in an OR. And frankly, neither is that administrator. But this it, is why I don't like academia that much. Like right. it has its place. That's where it a does. lot of science It's hard starts. for me because a lot of my clients are still in academia. I spent 10 years in it. I I don't want to be that person that goes, well, this is broken. Shove it to the side and go to the places that are more fun. If we don't participate in rebuilding it and making it better, and those of us who still have a stronghold in it uh, can do that. Then, did you read that that news article? The, the great exit? The Stat News article, The Great Exodus from um, Academia into Industry. Yes. Isn't that... I mean, that's serious stuff right there. But here's the other part of that. That makes me sad. I mean, that kind of makes me sad. I'm not saying academia hasn't done it a little bit to themselves or that, you know, this isn't a wake-up time for them. But I'm sitting here thinking about my four-year-old and how I've been saving since before I knew I was going to have him for, you know, his college fund for his... I mean, how can I not? I have like 80 degrees. I'm not going to not tell my kid to go to school if he wants to, you know, and try to support him. And, you know, I was very blessed. I had support. My husband had support. Um, But also I've seen some things that are like, why would I tell my kid to go down this road? Like, and I don't, I don't want that to be true in 10 or 15 years. Like I want us to have a chance to bring it back from the brink because I want to view it as how we look at all the different like vendors or stakeholders in our industry where everyone has a place at the table. Like not, I'm not saying there's no place for CROs. I'm saying they could do better work and they could work a hell of a lot better with sites and they could be an ally 
to sponsorship, but I'm not saying there's no place for them. Or I might be really hard on sponsors for not, frankly, properly compensating the sites that are so critical to their work and not always remaining patient centric in their focus. But I'm not saying there's no place for Uh a sponsor at the table, right? Like there's a place for all of us. And academia has that. And the sad part is what academia has cornered the market on, if they would just do it a little bit better and be a little more competitive in each market is they're almost always in medical centers that are in metro hubs, right? So like look at right here in Indianapolis, the IU Academic Medical Center. It is on a campus with two level one trauma units, a VA medical center, a national children's hospital, a comprehensive cancer center, and every undergraduate and graduate degree you can possibly imagine. All in the middle of our downtown, which it's Indy, not Chicago. I get it. But still, in the middle of downtown, that's a really cool setup. And so anyone who's coming into Indy can be at the academic medical center in 10 minutes, like from the airport. So we are going to corner the market on anyone who can reach an urban area or who is already in an urban area. Not saying that doesn't leave rural and certain patient populations behind. We'll deal with that in a separate conversation. Having said that, though, if you have the catchment area built in like that, and think about it, what major AMC is located in bumfuck nowhere? Uh, None of them, right? They're all in hubs. They're all in metros. Mm -hmm. So these should be where every sponsor goes to get every urban patient population they need. And there should be no reason we don't hit recruitment at every single one of those locations. But they don't. You know why they don't? Because their coordinators, I've monitored these AMCs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I do it too. Their coordinators don't want to be there, which at every private site I've seen, even the ones that are mismanaged, they want to the be the coordinators still want to be there. <laughs> they may be frustrated as hell, but man, they're in it to win it. And here's the yeah. thing. They feel they feel personally involved at the private sites. Like yep. your site, uh Macro Trials, who I've been very, you know, vocal about oh, working with. Man. Brad. My site, the coordinator, I don't even ask them. They post on their own Instagrams, hey, we're recruiting right now. Right. I don't ask him to do that. Right. But that's because they're empowered, they're passionate, they know that that's what the organization wants them to do. I could totally see someone at a big academic medical center not posting because yep. they're scared they get in trouble because it wasn't like approved by marketing. Thing. Yep. And yep. and here's the thing. Part of it is private sites are small and academic medical centers are massive. So like anytime you're dealing with any massive organization, it is just harder. Um, and, and from an ops perspective, I'll give any organization that's large, you know, fair enough. It's just a lot easier to talk about change when you're talking about five people versus 500,000. Fair enough. But again, when I get back to that metro urban catchment area, it kills me. It killed me when I was in-house. It still kills me when I talk to clients or academic medical centers that are you know, seeking out my advice for some reason. Obviously, having been inside for 10 years, I'm still on tons of different like listservs or peer networks you know, that get together and talk about all the issues. It's a way for me to stay informed, not feel so damn lonely in my home office uh, and, and really see what they're dealing with. And we're not learning at a leadership or executive level in some of these spaces. We're not taking like what's happened in the paradigm of the pandemic and saying, okay, how could we do this smarter? Let's not just return to the way we've always done it. And you see pockets of movers and shakers, because again, huge organization, you're always going to see pockets of people who say just status quo leave as is and pockets who want to, you know, push and rebel. But it's the leadership that I see time and time again that it's just a very interesting paradigm 
to look at. So you have these major research organizations who realistically, if you're a large medical school with a giant research center attached and you're in the United States, you have some type of vice president for research, right? You have some type of big research compliance line. Mm-hmm. How many of those vice presidents research were ever a CRA? Yeah, almost zero. You can basically say none. Yeah. But the re- the reason the reason I think AMCs are I wouldn't say failing. I mean, they without AMCs we wouldn't have innovation because no. whenever a new IP comes out, typically it's first done um, in vitro and even like before that at the AMC. Mm-hmm. And then their business model is let's get grants. Yep. Let's do it. Yeah, we'll do some industry-sponsored trials because we have patients that we also treat in our medical centers, so it makes sense. But it's not like they need the industry-sponsored trials. You no, know, they survive the only the areas you see those in is like oncology centers. Like oncology centers right. are the only hub of industry in the entire academic model because of exactly what you just said. But and why? Why not like an obesity trial at? Indy, so that's another Indiana. part of that model that I don't understand. I mean, yeah, hello, obesity in Indiana, health in Indiana. And and I, do, I think it's because, so this is the part that like the rub that I've seen over and over. And I saw it in my own academic career. You know, I've seen it teaching at the law school. I saw it when I was working there. I still see it is. There's this ivory tower approach to funding. So there's some thought that, and I understand the competition is steep for an NIH grant. No joke. Having said that, if you're not attached to a giant academic medical center, if you don't have, you know, a fancy uh, title at the end of your name with one of those logos, you won't be applying for NIH funding probably anyway. Or if you are, it will be a very limited part of your portfolio funding because we all know that there's a skewed approach to how grants are handed out, right? So we have this very systematic setup that has said the most prestigious are not the most industry focused. It's actually by the federal government. And we award those more heavily, basically, whether we want to say this out loud or not, to large academic, you know, revered ivory tower organizations as opposed to a private freestanding site because of the way the grant application requirements were always set up. We never envisioned a world where NIH would offer a grant that wasn't in some giant medical school or some giant center, even though that is where we've gone now and how we perform our research. And so academia is sort of clinging to this notion of, well, yes, we don't understand all the woes that exist in, quote unquote, you know, the practical world because we don't, we don't deal with industry as much, but we are nobler. We are seeking, you know, a higher funding. We are, dude, it's just as competitive to get Merck and Pfizer to fund you as it is the NIH. Like there is just as much work involved. And it creates a rub between when you have these big academic centers that do have a lot of oncology presence or they do have like an NCI center. It's totally an issue because that center that's doing all that cancer research is industry. They live industry all day long. They're reg people, they're CRAs, they're monitors, they're auditors. No one else in the university does, not even the IRB. And so they're just like hanging out here going, does anyone understand my plight? Does anyone understand why I'm so frustrated that I have three different SIVs this week? And then, you know, like, and nobody gets it. Like the rest of the campus is like, like, what's the big deal? Like, why? What, what are you complaining about? You got all that industry money coming your way. You right. didn't have to go get an NIH grant. And the folks who are sitting there deal with industry all the time are going, what? Since when did that become like a lesser 
revered task since when did that become like looked upon like it wasn't real money or that it didn't require real effort to lock right. it in and frankly having worked in the spaces that were heavy industry with all the monitoring with all the auditing with all the presence and the areas that weren't i'll say two things one the areas that have all that industry up in their business holy free holy that is way more painful way more painful um than dealing with nih than dealing with all the federal grant me mechanisms i can think of hmm. two the ones that have industry in their hair all the time have far more true ops, high quality compliance experience because they have no choice. They're getting raked over those coals every single day by every sponsor and every CRO. Still and so at the AMCs? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Huh. Oh, yeah. I thought, okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've only monitored. And so it creates, a very, it creates a very different, like, if I'm working with, like you said, like, you know, um, a department on a NASH trial, an obesity trial, um, you know, if I'm working with uh, OBGYN on a pregnant women's trial, like all those are going to hit very, very, very differently, likely in terms of how those teams work, how their site ops work, how they understand interacting with, say, the IRB, the FDA, than those that are industry sponsored. And actually, now, that's Edie, the value. Edie, what about private public uh, public private mm -hmm. uh, partnerships because i remember before covid and i haven't been keeping up if it's been gaining steam or not but as a business person i can't help but think why you know if all all these like if academia is losing all this talent that can't be good for them why not do public private partnerships i remember they were thinking about doing that i was i put a bid in as a proposal mm -hmm. they they were looking for consultants to help um i won't name the Sure. University, but it's in the state I'm I'm in, and uh, you know. The good news is that doesn't really narrow it down. You're you're in luck. Like you could say okay. I can't say that. I can't be like I'm in Indianapolis, <laughs> and there's a university that has a medical school down the road, but I won't name it. Like I mean, come on, everybody knows what I'm talking about. Um, but they don't they don't do it. Or I think what they did was like asked ten to fifteen consultants to put a bid, mm -hmm. and then they just copied the business model, like <laughs> to do it themselves. But public private partnerships i think there's something there, there you're is. more in this world what do you think about this i think that there is and where i see there being some real solid and this is where as much as i pick on not to be named medical center down the road for me that i happen to work for for 10 years i always like to bring it full circle and make check sure the I get linkedin a of, check the like, linkedin profile. like a co couple of compliments you know as well because because it is still very much in my network and it is something that I hold dear. It's where I learned what I do. And I learned everything that's great about this industry. I also learned where it's broken, right? Yeah. And why I wanted to be passionate about it. If I hadn't had those experiences, I might not even be in this industry. So I, I don't take that lightly. What I will say that I've seen growth in and that I like to see more, and, and you see like um, U of M doing this, you see like Harvard and Brigham doing this, you see some of the major revered academic medical centers is making sure that they have partnerships with hospital systems that provide different approaches. So this is really complicated when you're internal because some of your staff is going to be employed by the academic center and some's going to be employed by the hospital system and you have to navigate like who's employed by what. Right. They get paid different things, they get different benefits. Like you have to harmonize that kind of stuff. That's where we make mistakes because right. don't think the hospital people don't know what the academic people make for a living and vice versa. And if it's ten thousand dollars more at one than the other, all your people are going to go to one side of the ship than the other. You know, like come on. Right. But if you have a hospital system that's truly a hospital system, not an academic hospital system, 
that is willing from a private perspective and has like state presence or regional presence, has multiple centers, maybe has rural um, centers, right? Especially in a state like Indiana, Illinois, um, in this particular region. And they partner with an academic system that can bring research to all those hubs and markets that can support the compliance, you know, the big research compliance administration and features that are required to operate on that level, then that partnership can be incredibly powerful. Um, where I see them fall apart is, like I said, the, a lack of harmony. Like a good example is there is a, a major public county hospital system that just merged with a major private religiously affiliated hospital system um, in the uh, Cabell County, Huntington, West Virginia area. I happen to have family there who's all clinicians as well. And they didn't harmonize things as simple as like how many PTO days one set of staff versus another gets off. What kind of benefits each one gets? What kind of pay each one gets? Who, who acquired the other? Who? Uh, Cabell acquired St. Mary's, I believe. Okay. But it happens either direction. And I saw it happen in the IU model too. And it, it just seems like, Again, getting back to that disconnect from, I understand that at that high level leadership, you are making some very difficult decisions. You are seeing, you know, balance sheets that I'm never going to see. There are political motivations, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But the end user of that partnership, the coordinators, the nurses, even the physicians, you know, the administrators, the mid-level management or even senior level management, it creates incredible disparity and issues in things like retention and job satisfaction yep. because of the trickle down effect of some of those details that got left out. And so that's where we see from like management leadership, but also academic public pride, but partnerships kind of that ability to do something amazing, which it's going to have to be thought through. It, it takes time. It takes effort. And it can't be that when you do find that one thing that was overlooked, and wasn't thought of you can't go oh well that's just how it is now like if you work over there you get ten thousand dollars more and if you work over here you get 10 more pto days a year like that does, you can't just like leave that on the table and then be like i have no idea why everybody left one place for the other i mean yeah you do yeah. you know, you know the, the people that work at these not to not to pick on them but there's something different inherently different about working at a smaller company oh, yeah. there's there's this motivation that gets lost the bigger the organization gets well think about it it's easier it's easier to get away with doing less you have at a smaller leaner organization any industry any industry if you know if your organization doesn't like clear their bottom line this month you might not get paid that'll get you out of bed that's very whereas if you're at a massive organization i don't i don't care what kind CRO sponsor academia, anything hospital too big to fail, <laughs> too big to fail. Right. And you know, like, like I always call it phone it on Friday. So I give my husband a hard time because you know, everybody's had that Friday where you're just, it's you're ready for the weekend. Right. And I'm like, yeah, and I can phone it in. My clients would understand if I said I need to take the afternoon. I don't work with people who wouldn't get that. I just wouldn't get paid. Mm-hmm. So I will go ahead and get it done this afternoon. Like, yeah, I just will. It, it won't maybe be the best work I've ever done in their life, but I'm going to get it done. You right. Good. It's because incentives. Whereas, Charlie Munger said it best. Yeah. It's, show me the incentives. I'll show you the outcomes. And he works at a large organization where it's not like he's not showing up or he's unavailable or doing anything illegal. But admittedly, if he puts in 50% today instead of 85%, his paycheck doesn't change. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, 
that's where I think it would be really valuable. I know it wouldn't be financially viable, but there's got to be some type of bonus infrastructure in these academic spaces that could be based on performance. Some of it's based on retention. Hey, you've been here for 20 years. We want to give you five extra PTO days just cuts. But <laughs> some of it's got to be. and that 20 was like, years for five days. That's a good trade-off. <laughs> right, something like that. But I mean, the reality is like, that's that's how it works. I mean, that's why you go to industry because you get bonuses. Mm -hmm. And the way I see it is industry is not necessarily doing it like that much better. Like, think about it. How many times have you heard about a job where, oh, we have a 15% bonus infrastructure and don't worry, you'll get your bonus every year. Well, how can you promise me my bonus every year? How is it a bonus if it's guaranteed every year? Yeah. Like either it's part of my base salary or it's a pointless bonus that everybody's just getting and collecting without having to do their hard work every year. I mean, and so it's not like, you know, if you step out to CRO land or sponsor land, it's like perfect or done better. They, they go to the opposite end. They go, we'll guarantee you, you'll have this 10% bonus every year. So then you still have people who are, I mean, to Brad's point in his post yesterday, reading the PowerPoint slides <laughs> and not exactly passionate about the excellence they're bringing to yeah, the table. Yeah, I've stopped allowing series to do that. I Have you really? That, yeah. How'd you do it? I mean, do you just say like, no, I thank say, you, we're just not going to sit through this? I can read just fine myself. Right. My PI, if I don't do it, my PI is going to do it when he gets in there. Well, because why? Like, I, I, I don't understand that at any type of presentation, let alone. But I, I think I there's some CRAs that are new, so they're afraid sure. to go outside DBA. their box and they're actually waiting i know some who are actually waiting i've because they've told me hey thank you for telling me that because they told me if you ask me to skip the slides i can yeah but yeah. if you don't i have to read them right so i already learned that trick like a few years ago like hey, hey we don't need this but if they're brand new they won't they'll they'll just read the slides and um if, if they're experienced they'll wait or if they're like super experienced like robert who actually calls the shots Robert Goldman at his study, mm -hmm. he says, yeah, we're just going to skip this and I'm going to tell you what you need to know because based on my experience, I wrote the protocol. I was one of the people who wrote it. So I know where the pain points are. I mean, right. that's rare, but you, you'll you right. eventually get that. Um, well, but that's, that's another question about management leadership. I mean, talking about it. So how does a management level decision be made that a junior level CRA who clearly isn't trained or experienced enough to do this without reading line by line of the slide why is that person being deployed you know why because most of these cro's are publicly traded most of these cro's um, there's no incentive the incentive mm -hmm. is for that cra to go there to document their visit and not screw it up yep that's the incentive it's Check not to the entertain the sites or to be mindful of the site's time um, it's none of that. It's just, let's get this done. Don't screw it up. So the easiest way for that is read the slides. That's it. It's safe. Well, I, I, and, and since when, I don't know when or what year, I mean, I've seen this become obviously prolific at this point and it, I, I just won't even do it. I, I, I get very frustrated and tell even some of my clients that if this is the kind of education you want to offer, then please don't ask me to be a part of it. Um, and that is the, since when did we think that teaching some of the most critical concepts about either like how to do your job or how to be compliant or how to keep a patient safe should be something that we put in a PowerPoint and someone goes, click, 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 yeah, click, yeah. like when, when did that become a proficient method of training people anyway? 
I don't care if you're having them read it on their own time or you're reading it to them. Either way. Like, it's not the best learning environment at all. I, I know very few people who are frankly intelligent enough who could read through it. And those who have been doing research ops long enough, we can fly through those things in those quizzes because you aren't asking us anything hard. So we're not learning anything new. We're just checking a box. And let's think about the things we do this with. We do this with like, oh, I don't know, HIPAA training where there's million dollar fines from OCR if we get it wrong. FDA compliance, again, massive fines, shut down your study, 483s, warning letters. Like, why would your most important trainings that are truly what's going to get your staff to understand like why we do things the way we do things from a regulatory perspective not being done in I mean I get it it's not the most exciting information ever but I promise you I can make a room full of people laugh while I do it I promise you we won't all hate our lives and people will walk out more informed and I'm also not just going to read you the common rule or read you you know the 300 or 800 series out of the CFR I'm going to be like yo so here's what went down okay we did it like this, we messed up, and now we got to do it like this because of that. I'm going to give you buy-in. I'm going to give you real examples of like, yeah. this is how it works in your facility. This is what you as a oncology center, as a private site, as a whatever stakeholder you are, have to think about this. Yep. That's how it's done. And the price, I was talking to someone about this last week, the price of doing it right up front versus the price you pay of doing it wrong is exponentially cheaper. Like This is not a hard sell. Look at... Um, Debra over at Klimbas. I don't know if you know them, but they do master classes. Oh, yeah. No, no, I know Debra, yeah. She does extremely affordable master classes on every element there is from negotiating a CTA, a budget. I do some master classes with her. These are these are not expensive. These are pennies on the dollar compared to City um, yeah. and some of your other big providers. And they're phenomenally well produced. And people are narrating it and talking you through it. And there's like meaningful discourse and it's just it blows me away it blows me away that's why the whole oh, why thing blows why me though away. why 80 that's because that's because deborah can do whatever she wants yeah. <laughs> she's she's not beholden to a boss right. saying hey that's great that you want to like go rogue and do it this way but if you screw up you're right. either fired or we got to bring you back and you'll never do that again and so most people, if they work for these big organizations, like, hey, I don't, I don't want that. Yeah, I'm not, not going to get problem. fired. I can't lose At my job. At the end job. of the day, it's not my problem. I just, what do they all say? I just work here. Yep. Yep. I just work here versus and like, who this wants is those my employees? business. I don't want anyone who works <laughs> for me to go, ooh, I just work for her. <laughs> well, like, because you can control it that. at your small company, but at the big ones, you have no incentive to control it. Yeah. And that just makes me sad, though, because, I mean, these are also our institutions that are teaching the next generation. I mean, you're teaching the next set of lawyers, doctors, nurses, dentists, you know, whatever. Um, I'm just thinking on a medical school campus, like, and that's that's the environment that we're going to surround them in and put them in of, like, you know, instead of, hey, I found a problem and I think I have a solution. Just awesome. Bring it to the table. We want to do better, faster, more it almost gets poo-pooed. Like I, I remember I was pretty much the bull in the China cabinet all 10 years that I was inside. Um, and luckily I had a lot of mentors and a lot of bosses. They can't contain that bull. You know, <laughs> ultimately that bull goes on their own. Well, but it was, it was hard though, because at the same time I had those, those pockets where you had some really extraordinary movers and shakers that wanted to see change, believed in the bigger picture, um, you know, saw the positive that, that was there. 
and some of the good that we could do in the community and in the region, but also show where we were falling short. And so like you'd get into some, you know, meetings and some leadership and it'd be like, wow, these, these are the right people. They're really listening. Um, but change isn't fast. We used to always call it the glacial pace of academia because at a smaller site, I mean, let's face it. If you go into your site this afternoon, because somebody calls you and says, get your butt in here, we got a problem. You're going to fix it. And if it requires some administrative change, you're going to fix it right now. Like you're going to go, okay, that's done. I can change my SOP in five seconds. Right. Get it routed for signature by today to everybody who are. And have it pushed out and everybody knows it. Right. So there's, there's some, something to be said for that. But then, okay, here's the other side of this coin. Because this is what I think that COVID did for us as like a silver lining if we were all going to be stuck at home anyway with our entire family in our house. Days, days, weeks, and months. Oh, man, I remember. Is um, I think it did expedite like we had this belief system that academia is where you went if you wanted to get real healthcare, real research. And we were starting to move away from that. And people were starting to really go, Wait, why is that so again? Why can't it be this small private research site? Why can't it be at a physician practice? Why can't it be community-based? And then COVID showed us that we need all hands on deck, right? And that the best doesn't always come from the biggest. And so it was like suddenly the world opened up their vision of where we can do trials and how we can do trials and who can do trials and how that you know works and looks. But how do we keep that momentum? Because, I mean, SOS Conference, great. Obviously, Ooh, we've got... Thank you for the shout-out. You're going. I was going to say, we've got, you know, the Mount Rushmore of, like, you and Brad and Dan Fox and all the greats. Um, and believe me, I've got a laundry list of folks I love to get a shout for. But how do you get that momentum going? Like, how do you capitalize on... Is it truly, hey, we bring a different model than academia, and so that in and of itself captures the types of studies we want to do, the types of patients we want to work with, the types of sponsors... Or are you still, as a smaller commercial site, kind of a little bit beholden to some of the same things academia are in terms of finding money, finding trials, finding patients? Like some of those struggles are the same. You just attack them. Well, finding patients, yeah. Finding money, no. Yeah. Worst case scenario, we don't get paid for a year. I have to furlough my employees. I say, look, we're going to still keep it on your resume, but I can't pay you. I'm going to work here for free until we get paid. Like that's just, it's not going to end. Like I'll work for free. Uh, Finding the patients. I think it's the same struggles. Um, We have a large database at our site, huge private practice in Yuma. Same comparable to like an AMC, like Mm -hmm. unlimited patient. You want the diagnosis unlimited. What it boils down to is that stringent IE criteria. Yeah, And then the IP, oh, like everyone overlooks the IP. Is it an injection? People are afraid of those. By oh, the way. yeah. Is oh, it yeah. a pill? Like, what is it? Is it a device? I mean, that all plays into it. You have to teach the coordinators how to be persuasive. I see that lacking at most AMCs, mm-hmm. unless you get an outlier coordinator that's just, that does it because intrinsically that's what they believe in. Like, yeah. I'm going to go out of my way to make sure these patients are informed and get in the study or don't get in the study, but I'm going to do my best to inform them and empower them to make their decision. You don't see, that's not the norm at these AMCs. Mm-hmm. And The and norm the is to is get like, through your day. That's right. the norm. And like, I, I just want to know where, like, I'm a big, 
if I'm going to try to solve something, I have to understand it. Do you know what I mean? Like I need yeah. to understand like the, so like when I moved into research misconduct, very, again, very serendipitously part of my compliance time at IU, the first thing I wanted to do was, okay, so where did this all start? Like, where are the regulations from? Like, I know that about the Commonwealth. Yeah. I know that about the FDA. Like I would never work in an area that I didn't know the whole history, not just the current. And it was, wildly interesting to read about it. I ended up getting uh, a master's in the space because I was so in entertained by it. And so because of it, it makes me think like, where did this start? Where did this um, persona of academia start? Is it because there was a divide in your either, now I could see this having been very specifically staff and not faculty at an academic medical center. And believe me, staff is a third class citizen at the bottom of the Titanic and the faculty even if they get unlimited coffee <laughs> right even with unlimited coffee and gene you know free gene Fridays right kombucha in some places um no, not in Indiana. um <laughs> and we're not California um San Francisco right there you go and 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 it wasn't because I was I would always be very quick to be like I mean I'm I'm adjunct faculty I teach plenty at the law school no, no, no. Tenured faculty or faculty that up for tenure. So I wonder if it's like that. Like, did it start there? Is it that we begin to really highly clearly denote and signal that this class of people doing this at the organization were somehow a higher class and that these people who were, I don't know, keeping the lights on and the doors open every day were somehow a lower class, right? Um, and that sort of began to drive that wedge, maybe. I don't know. That's just well, a hypothetical. Well, it happens in private companies too i mean there's right. the ownership class they're the for the big organization there's ownership there's management and there's workers and at what? mine there's just ownership slash management and then right. the coordinators but even your coordinators don't feel like workers like that's not your relationship with them that's they not know the that relation. they're like the backbone of what you're doing right like they, they understand their value and their day-to-day they know their value, and my job is to make sure that they understand that I actually care about their career, even beyond. Right, even if they leave. Me. Even if they leave. Yeah, and they all know that. It takes a while to get them to be comfortable with that, but they all know that. That's how I always was with my staff, even if I do. I mean, I'd be like, look, if, if you need to go, you get that job offer of a lifetime. You worked your butt off to get whatever, or maybe it's as simple as your partner needs to move yeah. for a job. Either way, you're going to have my recommendation. I just had this talk with one of the staff. I said, look. When they go and they double or triple what I offer you, I don't want to be the one holding you back. No. Just be honest with me. I'll give you my opinion about them. I'll give you reference. But while you're here, the next three months or 12 months or 24 months, right. you go ham. Give me everything you have. Don't BS on the phone when you're at work. Don't do none of that stuff. Go hardcore for, for me. Right. I'll go hardcore for you when it's time. Right. That's right. it. But that's missing when you get when you add in a management layer. Then they're like, "Well, I'm trying to impress ownership, but I'm now managing you." It's different. You lose a lot when you bring in that management layer. Yeah, and I think that's my frustration: is how do we not? Like, it's great to move out into smaller spaces, which is obviously what I did and have been doing, you know, for six years. But for me, admittedly, some of my clients are still big academic medical centers, whereas some are really small, and so. At first, it was like, well, I mean, you can ask me who my favorites are. You know who they're going to be, right? Because it's easier to work with my smaller, driven, go get them sites. I'm not spending three weeks just trying to get somebody to even reply to an email. You know, like it's just a different environment. <laughs> um, Yikes. Having said that, I still have to have some of these techniques and principles and ideas for those bigger clients. And like I said earlier, 
if my purpose, I'm a big purpose driven, you know, passion person. And if my long-term trajectory to leave the big organizations or academia was because I thought that there was a way to make differences in them from the outside, then what are those differences? Like, it's great for us to have a lot of smaller entities running around doing, frankly, fucking phenomenal, amazing things that even large industry hasn't been able to pull off. But what's the full circle moment in that? Are we just saying now we're going to have all different sizes of stakeholders at the table and that just is, and we recognize each one has its own pro-con you know, value prop? Or is there some type of harmonization that we could put on the table? Granted, 20 years, 30 years, this isn't something I'm trying to like promote for the next two or three years. Where we take some of these lessons back to the bigger organizations and say like, look, you're never going to be able to change your SOPs in two minutes the way we can right at our site because you're just too big. There's too many layers of, you know, requirements and bureaucracy. Having said that, we'll never support 7,000 trials the way you do. So could we learn? Could we possibly have a conversation about some of the ops decisions that you make that make your volume possible, but also some of maybe the management or culture decisions that make your people come to my smaller site and be perfectly happy to take a chance on getting furloughed to not live in that culture anymore or to do it differently. So like there has to be, I mean, I know I've done it with in large organizations where you have like some strife between a particular research department and a regulatory body, like maybe the IRB and you just sit down the individuals. And I mean, it's kind of like dealing with your four-year-old at preschool, right? Like we're all going to sit in a room. We're going to share our feelings politely. We're going to see how we can come together. We're going to start to realize that there's actually humans on both sides of this table. Um, and that probably there's been some miscommunication that's led to this frustration. Hopefully that's really, you know, the linchpin. So like, how can we do that? Cause I want us to keep going down this individual small org site driven role. You know, I'm like all in for that, you know, first 50 people to be headed to SOS, but like, how do we bring that back? Cause that's what I get asked is, so then my big clients come to me and go, so you're so outspoken on so many of these topics. You know, we love the energy that you bring. We love that you have different types of clients. You're not just one size fits all, but admittedly, everything that you want to pitch to us of how we could do something is really meant for a smaller or medium sized organization. I need things that work at a larger level. And so, you know, I mean, of course I'm going to match that need and meet that requirement, but that's where I'd love to see the full circle, right? When we're talking about the management, the leadership, the culture, how we're doing it, our industry, and frankly doing it better. I mean, there's no shortage of everybody knowing they could do it better. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what you think about that. And, and that may not be in your purview or your long-term you know, view because you're obviously in a different, very committed space. But for me, bridging that gap between all of the different stakeholders at my dinner table, it's like, how do I, how do I make them allies, not enemies? You know what I mean? I think there's some organ. I mean, you have to, that's where you got to look outside of our industry and yeah. try to emulate. I know our industry is unique, but you can say the same thing about all of them, oh, yeah. right? But ours, ours truly is different because the end, ultimate end customer stakeholder is the patient, which is actually all of us at some point. I mean, we're all patients. Yep. Um, I think Disney does it well as far as managing multiple departments. You almost have to deconstruct like these large organizations into like small, smaller companies, maybe even like their own brands. Dude, um, I'm so glad you brought up the Disney example because, yeah. I mean, 
huge shop. I hadn't been in years. I, I'm not someone who went to Disney a ton when I was a kid, but you know, the obligatory couple of visits, grandparents, family, whatever. I didn't live close to one or anything. And we went last year because it was like the first year that all the grandkids on one side were, you know, the right age. Everybody rolled in. It was Disneyland actually. Um, cause we were out in California and I was thoroughly impressed from the person who took my ticket at the gate to the person who helped my kid on the ride to the person who served me lunch at one of the cafes. I mean, like the right. customer service, the enthusiasm, but look the... at what they do though. Okay. Right. It's Disneyland. It's theme parks. It's, 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 uh, the Disney plus. Okay. They own ESPN. Mm-hmm. You don't even think those are different companies like ESPN. You're like, right. oh, that's a different mm-hmm. brand. No, that's Mm-mm. Disney. Disney owns it. Marvel, Star Wars, Disney Cruises. Mm-hmm. Okay, and like there's probably like ten other things I'm missing. Oh yeah. To the public, like those operate independent silos mm-hmm. because if they all operated like as just Disney, it, it would do what AMC's do. Right. It'd be too yeah. big. Even Pixar. Pixar is part of that. But all those teams operate independently. They even brand themselves independently. So that's got to be something that the AMCs look to emulate. And I think that's kind of the road they were going on with the public-private partnerships. But I think they can do it better. They can do it per therapeutic indication. They can almost even create like internal brands. Some do. Like UCSF does this. This tries this is it. something huge. This is something huge. When I was on IRB side, I mean, I still work with IRBs all the time. I struggle to get a non-commercial IRB to understand that while, yes, the regulations make it so that this person needs you and does need to, you know, it's required to listen to you. It doesn't mean that we can't treat it as a customer service moment. Yeah. Well, and, let's look at WIRB. Well, uh, right. Like if, who... if that's your biggest client, in any industry, you would cater somewhat to that. So if at an institutional IRB or an in-house IRB, one therapeutic area is your bread and butter at that organization, I'm not saying you bend the rules. I'm simply saying if you recognize that 50% of your research portfolio comes from one department, then you need to have a better and stronger relationship with that department because they're your primary client. They're your primary customer. It doesn't mean you don't still enforce every single rule and make them live up to it. But if 50% or even 25% of your submissions or your portfolio are coming from one space, like you said, why wouldn't that be branded? Why wouldn't it be known? Why wouldn't there be an understood relationship? Why wouldn't there be some structure around that? Because in any other industry, that's what you do. If you're Salesforce and someone is 50% of your client book, believe me, you're going to have people trained on every element of that customer's business and everything they might need or want from us. And it's going to be met, right? Because they understand that's 50% of their client book. Yep. Okay. So I'm glad you brought up IRBs. Because <laughs> there actually so is a good example. I dunk on them a lot. Uh, there's a lot I don't like about WCG. <laughs> I don't blame you. But they're actually doing this the right way as far as managing their brands. Did you know they own... They're obviously the big IRB, WCG IRB. They also own IRB Net. They also own study planning and site optimization. So Avoca, eFarm Solution, KMR, PharmaSeq, Trifecta, Velos. Then they get into patient engagement, Metavante, Analgesic Solutions, 3Wire, iConnect, ConsentNow, all kinds of other subsidiaries that operate independently, but Mm -hmm. all report back up to the same private Mm -hmm. equity. Mm -hmm. Private equity. And what, yeah, yeah, that I have, I got to talk, <laughs> there, I could go on a whole spiel about that in the GAO report. 
Having said that, I will say it's it's been interesting to watch because some of those organizations that they have acquired, while they're definitely still branded, their original brand with just, you know, a WCG added at the bottom, I think some of them experienced more change operationally than they thought that they would. I don't think they're allowed to operate quite as freely as say like our Disney model. Um, And I'm not sure all of them always understood that, but I also understand if WCG came and knocked on my company's door and said, here's, you know what we want to bring you into that fold. I don't understand why you'd think long and hard about it. Right. There's something you said for that. (laughs) I mean, like everybody has bills. Um, <laughs> you know, as my husband always says, there's always a number. There is always a number. Yeah. Well, they're they're an example because I dunk on them. So here's something good that right. I think about them. But right. of, of course, it can be done better. They could all be done better. But there is example. There are examples in our industry even. So. Yeah, I I agree. I well, and I just it's just very interesting to me to see the different models and to see the silos in which they operate, you know, like commercial IRB versus an in-house institutional IRB. They have very different models and rightfully so there's things about them that I would say should be different. And are again, that pro con, you know, of what's required. Having said that, why aren't they at least having conversations about what are you doing well that I'm not doing well? What could we learn from this model? Cause I think you spend so much time in all these different compliance mechanisms, whether it's IRB, whether it's reporting, whether it's auditing, it's all reactive. It's all like, oh my gosh, I have, you know, all these trials I have to get through for the meeting next week. It's never, let's sit down and just strategize for a moment. Where do we want to see our IRB in five years? Where, do, where are we growing to? What is our goal? <laughs> what is our retention strategy? What is our long-term operational strategy? And what happens is you see these human research protection programs, whether in large academia or, you know, mid-size or even small, where it's all very people dependent, you get somebody in there who's an ops expert, you get somebody in there who's a forward thinker, suddenly they might have the best HRPP in the world, even without more money, even without more notoriety, because the right person came along. But it's not built into the industry itself. It's not built into the nature of the job. It's 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 almost structured intentionally just to be reactive, never proactive. And then proactive is kicked up to like a leadership level above you but the problem is the leadership level above you that's supposed to make the proactive decisions hasn't lived the reactive life. And so yeah. it becomes like that end user disconnect. And that's, that's just, it's what's on my brain right now. Um, well, it was created about. for you, E, to change the game. And we need more <laughs> memes. We need more videos. Okay, memes. We Can we totally podcasts? talk about memes for a second? Because you and Brad are killing me with the memes and, and everybody else. I mean, like, Ted Trafford's got some great ones. I'm going to Brad totally... taught me how it's over. YouTube jail has been the best thing for me. Oh my God. I saw one of your memes the other day and caught that it said like made on Mematic. And then I got on Mematic. That was like <laughs> three hours of my life. I'm never getting back and I'm not even <laughs> mad about it. Um, which is rare for me to say, I don't even like to lose three minutes, but like hysterical, absolutely hysterical. I looked through them though. And I don't have like, I don't know. I, I think I either think that my humor would not be appreciated by others and, or it's a little too, um, on the nose, a little, little too harsh. No. And go so hard. Go like, hard, e. there are some times where legit I come up with things and then I go, oh, it's like that meme we were talking about before we went live of like, maybe I no, should bring no. this back a little bit. And then don't you're bring like, it back. Go all they want right? you unfiltered. I put the Elmo using cocaine <laughs> uh, on there and I actually did think twice about it. I said, nah, 
Let's post it. Let's just do it. Go all in, Elmo. I mean, now if I worked for an AMC, I would probably not post. Well, and I mean, admittedly, that's what's hard about branding when you're in this space too. Is like, I don't mind being known as a Red Rebel. That that's my brand exactly. I was aiming for that, but like, you don't want to do something that's gonna frustrate. I mean, even I have a boss at the end of the day at my firm, you know, that I work with, and like, you know, you want to be really respectful of that, and you know that you're gonna attract certain clients with certain types of things, and so like that's why I try to be really varied in what I do. You got to know your audience, all right. When I this was what it boiled down to with that Elmo sniffing cocaine meme. I'm talking about traditional sites versus DCT startups that right. ultimately fail because they're trying to reinvent what sites are. Yep. We're way too, we're not ready for that. And then you got sponsors deciding which one <laughs> and they're like, ah, screw it. We're going to go with these re- reimagined people. And then you see what happens. So mm-hmm. my audience are those traditional sites. Yeah. So my decision is, do I post this or not? Well, is it going to resonate with my audience? Yeah. I don't really care about the others. Right. So that's that's what makes it easy for me. But I don't work for UCLA or University of Arizona. I would think right. long and hard about I wouldn't post those. I doubt I would post those. I've definitely had I've seen I, I'm not on any social media, but LinkedIn um, which LinkedIn is really hard for me, honestly. I, I'm not a social media person. I totally show my age when I say that, but I am just, to me, it's a time suck. I'm not someone who lives with my phone in front of my face. I don't want to be that person. Like, I'm either at work and I'm getting it done, or I'm in mom mode or partner mode, or frankly, I just want to be outside, you know? Like, I yeah. don't, like, God, I sit in front of a computer all day. Why would I want to sit at home D. at night? Like, come on. Get some vitamin D. <laughs> and that's hard to come by in Indy. Um, and so, so legit. I don't understand it, but I just remember not too long ago, there was a post that somebody, like all my friends know I'm not on Twitter. So when there's like a real funny thing going viral, I get pictures or something like on TikTok or whatever. Yeah. And so, I forget what it was. I think it was pretty sure it was Twitter. Somebody posted something. It was meant to be funny. I could totally see the kind of, you know, crass joke. I have some gutter humor. So I laughed and I'm pretty vulgar and over the top in my personal humor. So like I thought it was funny, but the minute I saw that they posted it under the account that identified them as a part of a larger health center yeah wow, i was like oh wow. you're getting fired today kid you got to be careful like i was I like know. you're getting fired today i like, feel the same thing when i when i follow these corporate pages and they post something like questionable i'm like even i'm like ooh, coming from them see it's all about who you are in your audience right. if your audience is focused your decision making about posting or not posting a meme is more clear when you're right. disney Look at who your audience is. It's right. literally like everybody. So it becomes a lot harder. Same thing with oh, yeah. AMTs. Their audience is everyone. Mine, I'm lucky. Brad, he's lucky. We have a lot more freedom. In well, we and I'm lucky in that I get to play both sides. I'm always very clear that like my opinions, if I do post that meme, you know, that's a little questionable, are mine. 100% yeah. mine. And they come yeah. up on my page, not my company's mm-hmm. page. And if I were ever going to post something on the company page, which I'd totally be allowed to, it would be very, look at this talk we're giving, oh, yeah. look at this award yeah. we received, we celebrate the holiday season with you. Like, Whereas if I really want to tear into something, I'm going to go, okay, Edie Edens is saying. Mm-hmm. What Same the, thing. You know, I because would never I don't want to. Elmo doing a line on my Yuma Clinical Trials brand. I mean, even though we're only like eight people, 
still it's, it's a like that's just not what you want someone yeah. to google and find when nope. they're con- contemplating your site but nope. like at the same time i mean i legit the memes get attention like i read something recently about where even really complex social platform social media platforms like a linkedin that are used not just for social fun not just for reporting information but truly for like making business connections possibly landing jobs etc that legitimately even there humor and memes is way higher on you know the algorithm the views it over indexes right than anything that's meaningful which admittedly again someone who doesn't (laughs) like social media that's tough because i'm brad taught me brad taught me he led me to the water and, and now you're drinking. drinking. Now you're the, now you're Elmo sniffing the line, I'm man. Drinking. You're like yeah. the meme line, like right there. You and Brad going for it. That's right. Well, I, I get out of YouTube jail in a week, but I think the memes will be here to stay. Like I'm I, I have to admit, you might you might see me float a few and see. We'll see how they do. We'll see Let's how they do. It, I'm not someone who's like worried about my numbers. I don't post because of that. I just mean. I want content to be meaningful for my audience. Like when you talk about knowing your audience, that's one of those things I've tried to cultivate is yeah. like, as much as sometimes we all need to sound off and believe me, I'm in that crowd front line. We also need to contribute to each other's knowledge and share information. Like I love, love, love. That's why I was giving up. Uh, I don't know if you know, Darshan Kulkarni. Oh, I was giving him a, a hard time yesterday. Cause he had messed. He called me last week and asked me about something and then he'd have me read it. And I looked at it this weekend and I was like, yeah, you're totally like, I, I lawyer to lawyer, man, I'm on your, your page but you're just more upset about this right now than anybody else. And so then he posted it yesterday and I was like, oh, you're trying to see if everybody else will get on your upset page. And he was like, kind of, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, like sometimes it's because you, I mean, I really, I knew there had been a change in that particular regulation, but it's not necessarily my bread and butter. So it was informative that he's like, Hey, have you seen this? Hey, you know, and like leading me right to the right link or the right article to go. Oh, and I get that from my audience a lot where, whether it's a, you know, poll about IRB regs or an actual article or like some of my learning videos where they're like, this is actually really, really helpful. You're giving me 15 years of knowledge in five minutes. Right. And like that's powerful. And so that's my other big part of it. It's like, how do I, yeah, I want to get your attention. Yeah. Who doesn't love a good laugh um, or sound off, but like, I want to make sure that the audience still finds it meaningful. Do you know what I mean? Like, So it's like, Brad does that really well. You know what I mean? Like he'll hit a hysterical meme and then he'll turn around and say something that's like wildly deep 10 minutes later. And it's just like, oh man, I don't, I don't think I command that like that. I think I'm more of the older person on LinkedIn, like afraid to post anything besides GAO reports and polls about work. Although I've gotten really like outlandish with my blue hair. I've been pretty, I've been, not that this is like the first year I've had vivid hair. I've had vivid hair for years. But this is the first year I felt like, you know, I think that would say something to the industry about like my brand, who I am, but also not every research compliance attorney is just boring. You know, (laughs) like we have personalities, we have lives. And also, no matter where you're at in the industry, don't let them tell you who you have to be. No, I think that's a good way to end this one because that's exactly right. And we actually, we need more of you and just, Uh, I like your post. And we got I'm doing it. I'm getting me matic. I'm getting me matic, and everyone's gonna get, get memed yeah. out next week, and they're gonna be like, "Eighty, like stop." <laughs> the the algorithm will reward you accordingly. <laughs> um, thank you so much. We gotta do part. You two. too, man. We'll do part two whenever it makes sense. Keep killing it, and if for whatever reason I don't actually put eyes on you till SOS, man, I can't wait. I really can't. What do you know? What the numbers are up to? I'd love to give you a shout. Mm, let's do it right now.
224 early birds, Woo! which ended on Friday. And now we have general admission, only two, 226 total. But we got like until the end of this year to sell it. So, I mean, even if no one else buys another ticket, we got 226 people coming besides the owners and the sponsors. And Right? I mean, yeah, and in that's record good. time. And it's just, yeah. Like, it was like I was saying earlier with the whole conference thing. It's hard. It's expensive. When you're a small firm, you do do not have people who go out and exhibit for you full time. So, like, to have a really affordable conference is huge. I just yep. absolutely huge. Not to mention you actually know the content's going to be so grounded and so positive. Plus, I also think that we can totally take on, you know, scope and daa and all the others with our social media management man we're gonna go we're gonna do all the cheesy pictures i want like a prom booth i want like i want all the cheesy okay. cheesy stuff is what i'm talking about at sos like all, all the pictures are we gonna have some of these ridiculous themed parties at night are we gonna have, like like how, yeah. how big are we gonna go i think, I think we'll we have should... like one giant party we i think it should just be like a huge spoof on everything that we both love and kind of want to make fun of about big conferences, right? Because that's sort of the personality of the founders of this is is very much like, <laughs> A, make it meaningful and worth people's time and money, but B, let's make it really funny, you know? Let's make it's it something be, that... It's going to be good. It's going to be monumental and it'll be the first of many because we're already going to be... We're already talking about doing the one that, the year after and the year after that and we're not stopping. So it's just the first one, guys. Save our sites. Thank you so much, E, for supporting us. Everybody, go connect with E. Her LinkedIn is underneath this video and in the show notes. You'll see this on YouTube when I'm out of YouTube jail in about a week. So I'll be out. <laughs> Thanks so much. Good luck getting out of YouTube jail, my friend. Thank you so much. I need it. Like, subscribe, <laughs> comment, share. Follow E. Bye -bye. Thanks, everyone.